hello and uh, welcome to the podcast Fenced In. Those of you that are regular listeners know that you're uh, here with myself, Ben Peggs, and uh, my co-host, Chris Mollard. We're two GB international foilists and also coach and student. Last week we had our very first guest and this week we bring you our second. We're very pleased to announce that we have Dan Kellner, all the way from New York, and the head coach of Brooklyn Bridge Fencing. Dan is a seven-time U.S world championship team member and was the 2004 olympian for team usa he is also part of the usa fencing hall of fame dan how are you how are you doing uh guys thanks for that great introduction thanks for having me uh doing pretty well keeping busy and trying to keep on top of everything that's going on here in the u.s right now it's a little crazy so this is a, a great break from that What's the situation in the States at the moment? How, uh, how kind of free or restricted are you? It really depends on where you are. Uh, I just was texting with James Davis, and they said the lockdown in San Francisco ended on the 1st, and they're going to get back to some limited training on the 15th. We are still in lockdown here in New York City, and we have not even completed phase one of reopening yet. So we're still here. We're, we're in a holding pattern still. Yeah, it's a bit like kind of us in, in, in the UK at the moment, although I know kind of where you guys are, it's a little different because state by state may vary. But yep. even though, you know, small restrictions have been lifted for us, it's still pretty much a uh, uh, lockdown. And, and just to kind of fill, fill the, uh, the viewers in, obviously, Dan was, was a highly decorated fencer back in his day. And now he is obviously a full time coach and coach to Great Britain's Marcus Mepstead, who, uh, who won a world championship silver medal uh, at the Budapest World Champs very recently. And he was also coach to uh, Racing Bowden, who is the former world number one, as well as former coach to Sam Wellis, who was individual cadet world champion and also junior team world champion. So, Dan, obviously, that's a, that's a, a huge string of, of results in your coaching career. But let's kind of take it right back again and, and, and let's kind of talk to you. Give Give us an insight into what is your fencing story? What is, what is your history? Funny enough, I've told it a few times. I got into fencing because of a video game. Uh, when I was 13, it was 1989, I had a Commodore 64 computer with the game Summer Games 89 on it, which had all the sports of the Olympics, including fencing. Uh, oh, nice. It was a pretty crap game, but and I was really <laughs> bad at it. But it looked so interesting. So I went to, and spoke to my mother and she said, I don't know anything about fencing, but they've got it at your high school. Go see the coach. And the coach turned out to be one of my future English teachers, Ted Lee. Uh, and you know him, even though you may not know him. He's the head of the FIE semi-commission. He huh? was the head armorer in Budapest at the World Championships. So just randomly, I, my high school head coach was plugged into and is plugged into the international fencing scene. He's been an armorer for almost every Olympics since 84. Uh, and when it looked like I had some talent, the Soviet Union had just fallen. And he said, Dan, you've got to go see this guy. He's supposed to be really good. And it was my coach, Simon Gershon, who was the coach for the rest of my career. Also coached Nicole Ross, Miles Chamley Watson. Uh, junior world champion Sarah Taffel. So, and he had a senior world champion in women's foil in the 80s in the Soviet Union. So, I just, out of sort of sheer dumb luck, got uh, hooked up with somebody who is one of the best foil coaches in the world. They'll land on your feet selling that one. Yeah. 
and actually for no those that don't know Dan personally I, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time with with Dan very fortunately mm-hmm. um, obviously sharing a team with Marcus Mepstead and, and Dan spoke about his love for a game the other thing that I know that Dan loves um, and, and so he loves to beat me at continuously is is Uno the amount of times that Dan yes. spent playing cards uh, on trips is, and, uh, is a lot uh, a lot and I I I think I mentioned this in my talk with Zuma. I taught my daughter our rules, the rules <laughs> that you guys taught me. I have taught her and encouraged her to cheat at Uno and try and get away with all the cheating she can. It's, it's So my skills are staying, like I said in that talk, my skills are staying sharp for when we get back. What are your rules? You say our rules. What are they? How do so, they differ? So brutal. The, the, the rules are brutal. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. They're also ever evolving. When we come up with a new situation, we also add new rules. It's just, it's sort of like Fight Club. I, I, I the first rule of Uno Club is don't talk about Uno Club. Like you just... And those new rules don't often favor me. I'll, I'll yeah. have you that. You're too nice. You're too honest. Man. Oh, well, you know me. Honest, honest <laughs> one, eh? <laughs> so, Dan, you, um, you had, landed on your feet, obviously, with coach, and, and you were very fortunate enough time in Gershaw in, in your life, and, and kind of, your fencing then really took on a, a kind of life of its own and, and a momentum of its own. It's really amazing because when I first started fencing, the U.S. was really bad at fencing pretty much all around. And my first world championships was 1997 in Cape Town, South Africa. And if I'm not mistaken, we lost to Great Britain in the round of 16. I mean, we were bad. And so in those 30 years to come this far and we had no role models in U.S. fencing. It was really hard. We had to look to other countries to what we wanted to, to be like. And there was this sense at the time that maybe the U.S. could never be good at fencing, mm-hmm. that it just wasn't us. But the one thing I've learned is that if you throw enough money and coaches at Americans we will, and we want to be good at something, we will be good at it. And yeah. I think it just took time. Because we were doing things a certain way, but when the Soviet Union fell, we got this influx of Eastern European coaches who knew how to win at the world level. Mm. And that just changed the culture of U.S. fencing. Okay. And, and, I, and I guess, obviously, with going back, uh, you know, back then within U.S. fencing, it, it, come, it wasn't the professional sport that we kind of see no, fencing now. No, it wasn't. So... Yeah, in 2004, uh, like I said, I was on the Olympic team and we came in fourth in the team event. We beat Germany. We were the number two seed. We beat the number seven seed, Germany. We made the top four in the Olympics. That was the best result for a U.S. men's foil team in 56 years. And then in 2008, there was no team event. In 2012, the men's foil team got fourth. And then in 2016, I think they should have won, but they got the bronze medal. So there was a big gap for the U.S. doing absolutely nothing. And then we got fourth, fourth again, and then third. And you were doing all of this whilst working as well, which I know Chris certainly shares kind of that balance as well. So it's really, really interesting. In the beginnings, like I said, I made my first world championship team in 1997. 1997, 1998, I was still in university. So I could study and train, and it was much more like being professional. In 99... That was the first year I had graduated from university. It was working a full-time job and training, still on the world championship team. But then in 2000, when it came for the Olympics, I thought to myself, you know what? I've been on three consecutive world championship teams. 
I've been holding down a job. I can make an Olympics. I can take the next step with a job. I didn't realize, nobody told me how much harder it was to make an Olympics than it was just a world championship team. And in 2000, when I tried to make the team, I didn't qualify. The U.S. didn't have a team. Back then, Team World Cups didn't count for points. The way they qualified the eight teams to the Olympics in 2000 was just the top eight from the 99 World Championships. Okay. And in 98, we beat the Ukraine to make the top eight. In 99, we lost to Ukraine to make the top eight. So the U.S. men's foil team didn't qualify. It was down to qualify as an individual. A little way through the season, I could tell that I wasn't going to qualify. Like I got to the almost the end of qualifying, and I realized I wasn't going to qualify mathematically. It just wasn't. So I quit fencing for a year. It took me a year to like really reflect on my career that even though I didn't make an Olympic team, my, my career was still successful. I could still be proud of it, but I really wanted to achieve that goal. It was a goal I had I'd set out for myself when I was 15. I didn't know at 15, I didn't know what it meant or what it, I had to do to make an Olympic team. I just knew I wanted to do it. So a year to the day after quitting, uh, I came back into the club, told my coach I wanted to train again. I was out of shape. I had started smoking. And it took me a little while to get back into shape and get back into it. Uh, but then my coach convinced me to go to a national tournament and then another one. And within two tournaments, I had gone from being unranked in the country because I hadn't fenced in a year to being back on the world championship team. I guess you got to go to a World Cup now. Uh, and then in the second half of my career, it, it turned out I was even more successful than the first half. Very grateful for that. So when you say you came back a year to the day, was there something that sparked you coming back or was it just coincidence? Uh, did you see something on TV? Did you hear well, mention no, well, of something? So was there a competition coming at, up? What was funny was at the time, I was at a stoplight in New York with my girlfriend. We were just on the street. The listeners can't see the the what I'm about to do, but I was at the stoplight and I guess I was lost in my head and I did this. And my <laughs> girlfriend was like, what, what, what was that? And I was like, oh, oh that's Perry for repost. <laughs> and I guess I had been imagining fencing just like in my head and I did, it came out and I realized, oh, I, I miss fencing. It just happened to be a, a year to the day that I quit. I do that in my sleep sometimes when I'm kind of just dozing off. I kind of twitch and I try and stop hit someone or yeah. or, or, or something. It's the it's the weird it's the weirdest thing. Yeah. But, and then you just went straight back to the club and that was kind of that was that was it. That was the the energy was sparked again. Yeah, the energy and I just started slowly. And in the beginning, I just took lessons. I would just fence kids. I was out of shape, and then some fencer who was up and coming asked me to fence them. And it was like the first time since I had come back. It had been a few months. It was the first time I fenced somebody who was around my grade around my level and and i beat him pretty badly and i was like well i guess i can still do this so what did you do in your break in your time off in your year did you work um, did you travel did yes. you just enjoy life no i no i was very depressed i worked i drank a lot i started smoking um i i had fun but i definitely wasn't the same person without fencing then when I came back and I realized I wanted to do it again for real, I sort of engineered my life so I could solve the mistakes I had made last time. And what did that look like? Because if I understand it right, you run or you ran your own agency at that stage. Is that right? So Yeah. So basically, it, uh, when you say agency, it makes it sound much more glamorous than it was. It was basically me and a partner, uh, a friend. So basically... I had always been interest, interested in the internet, graphic design, animation, and that's the kind of work I did on my break. 
And so what I was able to do was turn that into steady freelance work with my partner so I can work when I needed to save money yet have the flexibility to train, travel, nobody really being my boss. So as long as I got the work done, I could train as much as I want instead of being tied to a desk as I was in the quad before. So that I find that very interesting. And that's essentially what I'm doing now. So I'm a user experience designer by trade. Um, I quit the corporate world about a year and a half ago. And I'm now a freelancer trying to build something kind of small. I have a yeah, few clients I, that I work with. And I took internet classes at Columbia in 95, 96. The internet was new. I was there before Flash was called Flash. It was called Future Splash. I was, <laughs> we, do you know what the Emmys are? They're yeah. like the, yeah. so yeah. I have two Emmy nominations. I did the uh, opening animation to the Rosie O'Donnell show the last two years it was on the air. I have uh, like interactive and design awards for the work I did, but it just wasn't my passion. And yeah. I knew I was good at it, but I wasn't great. And I knew I, it wasn't my passion because I didn't have the same energy and desire to put into that career as I did my fencing. And I think that's it, isn't it? It's even though we've, we've seen how professional fencing has come over, over the recent years, there are still athletes like myself and, and Chris and many around the world that are still obviously trying to balance uh, a yeah, lifestyle you, of self-funding. Yeah. There's that. And the other thing I did is I raised close to $100,000 for the men's foil team. Wow. To and, travel and, through, and train. How was that? How did that come about? Um, I, se I set up a nonprofit and asked people for money. Oh man, I mean, wow, it's a bit like some cool. of the, the athletes with the kind of GoFundMe yeah, yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, yep. It was, it was that. I did this before all that existed. You had to go through a lot of hoops and paperwork. What I am really interested in is so, as Ben mentioned, even when athletes are training full time or fencers are training full time, they're not necessarily training forty hours a week. So you know, Ben coaches on the side. I um, I do my freelance work on the side. You had. Uh, you know, some work as well. What happened? You said the second half of your career was more successful than the first. And so what what changed? You, know, you went you went to an Olympics, you achieved that goal, you won more titles, you you won the Pan Ams, I think. Yep. I was the first American fencer to win the Pan Am games in 33 years. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and you started a cascade because now it's only yeah, Americans yeah, that yeah, win yeah, the yeah, Pan yeah. Now, exactly. now if an American doesn't win, you're like, what did you do yeah. wrong? Yeah. Well, it's funny, that, and we didn't even have zonal championships back then. The Pan Am games were every four years. Oh, okay. Wow. It's like an so Olympic, we, it was like Olympic cycle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we didn't, I didn't have a zonal tournament. I, I never fenced with a visor mask, never fenced with replay, never fenced with uh, the uh, bib on the mask. Old school style. Old yeah. school. And I suppose but, for you, what was, what was the idea of kind of full-time full training, obviously, whilst um, trying to manage everything else? It was basically, my goal was to make enough money where I could live and train, be healthy, and not have my job interfere with my training. And I think that's a really smart thing to do, isn't it? It's the priority in life, isn't it? It's yeah. making sure that, that the main thing that you're doing is the fencing and everything yeah. else around that supports everything, the main everything idea. El yeah, everything else is to support the fencing. And like you're saying, you do other stuff. You don't fence 40 hours a week. And I think a lot of fencers don't understand this, but proper rest is part of proper training. You need to give your muscles time to, your muscles and your mind time to heal and regenerate and get stronger and you need to do something to keep your mind off of fencing that's fun sometimes i find you've got your work that you need to do but you should find something else that like kind of clears your mind of that gives you some uh free space just to do whatever you want and not worry about the stress uh, of training and competition
You have to have that kind of healthy balance, don't you? Yeah. And how do you do that now? So how do you switch off from fencing? Um, right now, I'm doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, I'm enjoying cooking with my wife. Uh, I'm playing. And TikTok. You're loving TikTok yes, at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I was just going to get to that. I'm playing with my kids a lot. <laughs> and I'm doing a bunch of TikToks. Just... One of uh, the, the British team manager, Johnny Davis, I thought was hilarious. Johnny's a keen, uh, keen cyclist. And there's this great photo of him with super tight leggings on and uh, Brooklyn Bridge uh, Fencing um, Club uh, t-shirt on. Um, and kind of doing the splits on a bike. And Dan has captured that perfectly on his most recent TikTok. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So actually, so, so you know, Dan, so obviously you went from kind of that lifestyle and we, we, we're kind of looking at the coaching aspect now. So you kind of went through a retirement a second time round. And then was it almost a, a natural transition to go from being a fencer well, into a fencing coach? Or was there kind of a delay in the process there was, as well? There was definitely a delay. I, I retired due to injury. Um, okay. I had two surgeries in 2006, and I thought maybe I could come back for 2008, but it just wasn't to be. It was too late in the cycle, and there was uh, too much going wrong. So it was a really hard time for me. Uh, I, again, went through um, a depression because I didn't know who I was without fencing. It was just such a big part of my life and big part of my identity. Uh, and the fact that I was injured and I was in pain, and I was luckily because we came in fourth in the Olympics and I got hurt fencing, the U S Olympic committee was paying me to lay on my couch and recover from my injuries. I still got my monthly stipend for the rest of the cycle. Amazing. So I, so I, and my health insurance. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, and it just came to a point where I realized I was just kind of going insane without fencing. And it turned happened to be that I moved to Brooklyn. There was a small club that I didn't know about two blocks away from my apartment. My wife found it. I just wandered in and said, hi, I used to fence. Can I fence here? And I just did some bouts for fun. And some people knew who I was. Some people didn't. It didn't matter. And then the owner there, one coach is leaving. So I asked the owner if I could take over that coach's students. I didn't know the situation was as bad as it was, but I just started coaching a little bit. And then I found that I loved it more than I thought I would. I didn't think I was going to be a fencing coach. I didn't think I would like it, but it turns out I think I love it more than actually fencing, more than wow. my own career. And so when I had a falling out with the fencing coach I was working for, uh, I started working there in about 2008 or so. Uh, I, a year and a half, two years later, I opened up Brooklyn Bridge Fencing. Oh, so this um, was completely separate from that club. You moved away and you, you founded Brooklyn yeah, I Bridge. Yeah, I took 13 students with me and okay. founded Brooklyn Bridge Fencing 10 years ago, basically 10 years ago, September. Wow. Um, Amazing. Yeah, like I said, I think I like coaching i love coaching more than fencing because when you fence for yourself you you have the agony of defeat and you have the ecstasy of victory but you only get that one time when you've got <laughs> students if they all do awful you get to feel awful many times over but if they all do well or more than one of them does well you get that ecstasy many times over so that 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 dopamine hit is just bigger <laughs> when, it, when it comes to fencing and there's and it's it's really an amazing thing to see kids grow up uh and become hopefully healthy responsible adults and knowing that you had something to do with that like i've known uh owen groaning Sater. you know him as the fencer from ireland the tall lefty but he's yeah. from brooklyn i've been coaching him since he was 10 years old Right. Wow. So I've seen him really grow up. I've known Sam Mollis since he was 14 or 15. 
There are just people that have just come through the even names you wouldn't know because they didn't go on to be good competitive fencers. But that doesn't matter. What matters is fencing changed their life. It's the process made, development. Yeah, the, the made person. them better people. And I still keep in touch with them and what they're doing after college and how they're doing in college. And it, it, it's just, it's really, I'm really uh, humbled and grateful to be part of their lives and oh, see their developments as, as human brilliant. beings. For me, that it, uh, it's so rewarding to see that. Uh, and I think the, the development of a person is, yeah. is hugely important. But uh, kind of what Dan is saying there as well is also, as well as that, he's a bit of an addict for dopamine as well. I think that's yeah. a nice kind of balance. It's being a bit of an addict and also yeah. like seeing the growth yeah. of the student. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the one thing I, I think, Ben, you've probably heard me say this before, but I, I realize I'm not a fencing coach to teach fencing. I'm a fencing coach to communicate my love and joy for this sport, show people how it transformed my life and then how it can transform theirs. I get that feeling a lot. Obviously, as I say, have the, the fortune of traveled the world with Dan and, and, you know, been able to kind of listen to some of his stories. And that passion just kind of comes out on, on a regular basis for, for the sport. And that's hugely important. And, and I think, you know, I can personally relate to that doing some part-time coaching work that I am, which is kind of giving your passion to somebody else and, and seeing their enjoyment and their love grow from kind of the ember that you first sparked is yeah. such a, a, an important part of coaching. And you're, you're teaching a whole range of skills, life skills, not just yeah. fencing itself. So no, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what, to hear. What I find as well is that I'm not a coach, but there are kids at the clubs that I go to that even without the coaching, fencing brings out different in them. You know, where I, I don't know where else in life you see yeah. a 10-year-old engaging with a 35-year-old you know, going up to them and having the confidence to say, do you want a fence? And yeah. You know, that and joking and being so relaxed. I think it's amazing. It's really good for, for opening people up and not just fencing, but yeah. sport and those opportunities in general. It's really cool. And, you know, actually, we, we, we joked and, uh, and and Dan is obviously an, an addict for dopamine like we all are. The other thing Dan gets is a bit of a sick satisfaction out of uh, working his students hard, which I believe he's just been doing with Marcus before he joined us yeah. on this call. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I just gave Marcus uh, a lesson over Zoom. I'm in Brooklyn. He is in uh, London, obviously. It, it's funny. It stems from I have when people say to me, oh, God, look at that. Dan, look at that fencer. Don't you think he's good? I have a very, very high standard for what the word good means in the world of fencing. And I know how hard you need to work to be good at it in, in, in my definition of the word. So I am always challenged by a student who is willing to work as hard as I am. And I tell it's like, I, I tell my students, I will work as hard as you're willing to work, but I can't work harder than you. If I find a student that is all in, that buys into what I'm teaching, that's one of my biggest joys in coaching. And I have no problem just kind of seeing what they can take and seeing how much they can understand and how far it can go. And I, and I guess that's kind of what Marcus is. He's emulated that beautifully. He's kind of moved yeah. to, to to New York and committed fully to the to the program and yeah. what, everything you've developed and kind of look what it's, it's given him. It's I given told, him a world championship silver medal. Yeah, I told Marcus, like, for a few years, I was very spoiled. I was coaching Ray Simboden and Sam Mollis at the t same time, uh, and they were tearing it up. And then, obviously, uh, uh, Ray switched. And then later on, Sam's career didn't go as well as we had hoped. And he switched. And for a while, I was kind of really down 
on myself and my coaching. And Marcus had already come to me at this point. And he had made some results. He had made some 16s and 8. He'd make a 32 here and there. It wasn't bad. It was better than he was fencing before mm -hmm. he came to me. But it wasn't what I was used to. And then he came in second. I had no doubt he could do it because I could see that he could do it. But to see him actually put it together on the day, I told him after, I was like, Marcus, you made me believe again. Which is actually with not just fencing right, but exquisite fencing. When you watch some of the touches back from the World Championships, they are just sublime actions. The, the line that he pulled off against Sun, <laughs> I don't mean to sound like I'm tooting my own horn here, but I've seen a lot of fencing. I've seen a lot of touches in the last 30 years, and that will rank up there with any touch, any great touch you will ever see in the sport. And to have done it like, in the semi-final of a world championships. And actually your expression and celebration when you saw that hit, where the, yeah. luckily the camera panned around to you beautifully. Yeah. And that was, yeah. uh, was excellent. But I'm guessing obviously, whilst we're in lockdown at the moment, you know, it, it's obviously really kind of thrown a curveball into to everybody's kind of life really. Uh, and what, what is the club doing? We run uh, six fencing classes a week. We also run five fencing adjacent classes where it'll be, uh, we'll analyze video, we'll bring a guest on, we'll do sports psychology. So we're running, so what is that? We're running 11 classes a week. And then we're also running uh, virtual private lessons. So we're just trying to keep everybody engaged and working hard. And it's really, really funny. I, I've made this joke a few times, but who knew that all it took was a global pandemic for kids to want to do footwork? <laughs> <laughs> but I, if you don't have good if you don't have great footwork coming out of this thing you did something wrong yeah this yeah. is a great time to work on your footwork work on your target practice that's the second comment in two weeks about like if you don't come out of this thing further ahead than than you were then you're doing something wrong last yeah. week was about your core this week is about your footwork yeah that's yeah. it Kai's come out with good footwork and a great six-pack that's exactly yeah. what uh, we're learning <laughs> from the two two very high class coaches and, and Dan is there anything that kind of the the club you or any of your athletes you think have potentially learned that it will be carried forward post the pandemic into training or just in life in general i had a talk with another set of coaches and somebody brought this up but i didn't know this and i it really it really changed something in me so fencing is a martial art it's basically the only western martial art but we are very spoiled in the sport of fencing because we can do our martial art our combat against each other five to six times a week and be okay. We're not physically injured. Eastern martial arts, you can't practice like that and be alive. They do a lot more solo practice and they've got what they call katas, which is their forms mm -hmm. of their moves. And that's the way they were able to package up their art and move it across the continent because people would memorize these forms. They would travel somewhere. They would teach somebody else. If you look at it like most first Katas are all block and answer, parry and repost. When, after you block somebody, you've got to hit them back. One of the hardest skills we have in teaching fencing to little kids is after you parry, you don't have to worry about getting hit. You've just got to make an answer <laughs> yeah, and make yeah. the repost. So Western martial arts figured out how to do solo practice without a partner, without consistent sparring. And we still have martial arts masters thousands of years later who will kick the crap out of you. <laughs> and we have Taekwondo in the Olympics. So fencing can take some of that solo practice and translate it to 
fencing practice going forward in case this ever happens again. That's really interesting because, you know, I've, one of the things I've found personally is that I, I'm sure most people on my social media have seen I've set up a dummy on the balcony. I'm hitting the dummy on the balcony. And I think that one of the things I didn't realize is that, you know, you kind of the idea of getting better in fencing is to fence somebody else and kind of learn the shapes, learn the patterns and learn the answers. Same with when you're taking a lesson off a coach. But actually, you're right. Kind of going through the habitual process of just working on set pieces, set actions on your own time, giving it really kind of clinical focus, actually it is a great form of training in itself. Yeah. And I don't think we do enough of that. A fencing lesson has always been me looking at you straight. It's always the same angle. Now I can give a fencing lesson from two angles where I'm looking at the side footwork. I'm working at the front footwork. And because we're on screens, we have to account for the lag, but we can turn a fencing lesson into a video game where you do something, I wait for you, your cue, I give you a cue back, and then you've got to react properly to that cue. And it's like playing the video game. And fencers feel when they do that, that it's actually like taking a lesson without hitting anything. And, but, but some people line up the distance, so when they finish the action, they're hitting their wall target or they're hitting their dummy. So they get that feel of hitting, but they know if they've done the action properly because they'll see my defense, they've got to go around it with their offense and they've got to do the coordination, their hand in the right time. And I can see on the video if they've done it right. And I can make a correction and we can do the same thing again. It's literally like playing a fencing video game. And that's the lesson because all fencing is, is making decisions in real time very quickly based on the information in front of you. Right. And then remembering to make the correct decision based on the cue you're getting. Actually, John Southfield said the same thing on Zoom, having that multiple choice and actually yeah. set, set pieces yeah. are yeah. good. But you can actually do uh, reaction choice yeah. stuff over Zoom, which no yeah. one really thought was a, anybody was able to do. Yeah. And you can. You, you just got to account for the lag. Because if, I'm, if you're moving around and I pull my arm back and you, if I'm coming at you and I pull my arm back and you go to parry, I'm just going to hold my arm back and word my hand and hit you. And if you're making that mistake over Zoom where there's a lag you're definitely going to make that mistake in real life when things are happening much faster. Again, to go back to martial arts, to know an action properly, you have to know it slowly. You have to know every piece of it slowly. Speed doesn't cover up mistakes. It just reveals it, right? Because no matter how fast the Koreans are, they don't win everything, right? Speed only helps if you can control it. And it's not speed that kills. It's the change of speed. It's being able to go from slow to fast, fast to slow when you need to, that is really what's deadly. I'll make an American analogy that may not ring true for you, but in uh, American baseball, there's the fastball, and that's the really fast pitch that you, you can hit. It's straight, it's fast, but if you see it enough times, any major league baseball player can catch up to it, right? Because they're professional athletes, and that's why you have pitches that are called the changeup. It looks exactly like a fastball, but it comes at you 10 to 20 miles an hour slower. So you end up swinging too early. And so it doesn't matter if you have like a 90 mile an hour fastball is not that fast. But if you have a 90 mile an hour fastball, but an 80 mile an hour changeup, and they look exactly the same, nobody's going to be able to hit it. Being able to control your speed, control what you're good at to really make you a successful fencer.
and actually sometimes that kind of speed change or, or that top speed, uh, you know, if, if it's mistimed can actually be, be your undoing. Sometimes I, I know certainly for myself is you think you're going as fast as you possibly can. You haven't necessarily read the situation and you overshoot the target or something, yep. or something like that. It's very easy to do. So actually yep. timing is, is key is, and actually a lot of actions have in some way with the footwork slowed down a little bit. And for the very fast fences that are, actively searching for the blade as fast as they can you get you get athletes able to walk touches on because you find that there's an overreaction yeah. or overstimulation yeah. from some of the athletes i always say like one of my philosophies is you start with your point first start slow finish fast but mm -hmm. there's no values in there your slow can be as fast as you need it to be as long as when you're coming forward you don't get parried you don't get jammed, you don't get stepped in on, you don't get caught in preparation. As long as you can pass through that and get to your opponent and hit them, you can move as fast as you want. Like as that. soon as you're starting forward and a person takes your blade, closes you out, picks you off, no matter how slow you think you're going, you need to go slower because you can't adapt to the situation that's right in front of you. The better <laughs> you get, the faster your slow becomes. I think that it, it seems like, you know, over your, over your entire fencing career, there's a lot of analytical approach that you've taken. And, and clearly you're a, you're, a, you're a deep thinker, which is always something that um, uh, I, I, I really enjoy having conversations because I love the way you kind of look at things. With all that information that you've kind of gathered over your career, what, what do you think all of that information expertise has accumulated in, in terms of kind of your, the greatest achievement, both as a fencer and, and as a coach for you personally? As a fencer, I would have to say being ranked top 16 in the world because now we're taking it for granted. At the time, uh, in 2005, I was only the second U.S. men's foil fencer to ever be ranked top 16 in the world. There okay. was one person before me, and I was the second. And like I said before, like when American fencers, we didn't have a lot of role models. So it was like we kind of had to invent it for ourselves in some parts to set that as a goal for myself and achieve it in the second half of my career is I think one of the best things I've done. As a coach, it's very, 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 very hard to compare results. I don't wanna take away anybody's one result by comparing it to somebody else's. Race had a lot of great results. Sam had a lot of great results. Marcus has had great results. Um, I've had great results nationally. I've had great results from kids just being able to do actions. As great as all the results are, and I want the results. Don't get me wrong. I want the results. I want them all the time. That is not nearly as long-lasting as what we were discussing before, which is the process of watching an athlete develop and <laughs> seeing them not be able to do an action and then do an action. Sure. And to gain the confidence of the practice and the system and the method working. You mentioned just now that you didn't have a lot of role models when you were fencing, when you were climbing up the rankings. Not American. Not American. Not American ones, ones sorry. That, so that's what I mean. Not, not many from the same nation. But there are many countries now that probably don't have that. Do you see other countries being able to to fill that void by working smarter and pulling themselves up? I definitely think it's possible. I always say there's four things that uh, you need to be successful. You need to have talent, whatever you want to define talent as. You need to have the thing that makes you good at the sport, the ability to put a light on. You need the work ethic. You need the drive to take advantage of that talent because there are plenty of talented people that are lazy. You need a good coach to tell you the right way to do things. And when I say the right way, it doesn't mean my way. 
There's a range of acceptable motions and tactics in fencing because we have different schools that are all equally uh, successful, but you've got to do something within that range. And then the fourth thing is support. And that's usually in the form of financial, emotional, psychological. And if a fencer has all four things, they will be successful. It's very rare. There's a lot of fencers with three. There's even more with two. I was very lucky that I had all four to get as far as I did. And I know I wasn't the best fencer. I was a second tier. I, I was a good fencer. Don't get me wrong. I'm not deprecating what I did, but I know there was another level above me. And I was not a great athlete. I was a fairly mediocre athlete. I wanted to be good at sports. And I just kept trying sports until I found fencing. And fencing was a sport where I could show people how smart I was. And the fact that I was left-handed didn't hurt at all. And my coach was left-handed. And I was able to take that and the technique and tactics he gave me and turn myself into a serviceable enough athlete to be as successful as I was. I wish, Ben, that I could work out like you and Marcus. I wish I was a gym. <laughs> I hate the gym. I see everybody in quarantine improving themselves and getting their six-pack abs. And it's like, nope, I'm just <laughs> drinking another whiskey and coaching and watching my TV shows. My time as an athlete is done. I wish I did want to work out but I don't. And I'm not going to fool myself. Sitting, honestly, having, chilling out and sitting on the sofa and having a nice frosty beer is also lovely as well. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you spend your life kind of active and moving. And, yeah, you know, I know, not... I know. But with, like, but there are some people who are gym rats who just love the gym. Mm. Without a goal of the Olympics or something, I couldn't care less about the gym. I'm totally, I'm like you. I'm like you. I, go, I, I, I work out and go to the gym so that I can yeah. get my fencing better. If you, yeah. if suddenly, you know, if like, if you moved the end date or you gave us a date for when it would all come back or you took competitions away i'd be like well what's the point yeah i might i go for runs but I, I definitely wouldn't do you know my two sessions a day like i'm doing now yeah. well considering that amazing anecdote from dan saying you know he hates the gym what what at the moment because and, and actually following on from what chris kind of said earlier on which was you know there are obviously nations out there with that maybe don't have the support or don't have the athlete within their country to kind of see as a role model. Obviously, in this global pandemic, people are struggling to be able to do regular training and even have the motivation to, to keep training. But what, what would you say are kind of your top tips for any athlete or coach at the moment in lockdown? And what could they be doing to still kind of come out of this feeling more motivated, more driven, more ready to go? I would set a schedule as much as you can. I would also not judge yourself if you can't stick to your schedule. Some people just get burned out. I would start slowly and see how it goes. I got burned out as a coach. We did eight weeks of six days a week without a break. We've never, I haven't done that in years. Usually there's a, a school holiday or we go to a tournament. And so there's a day without coaching. There was eight weeks of six days a week without a, a break. And all the fencers, all the coaches were burned out. And luckily we had like a federal holiday and we could, we could take a break, but I would definitely say pace yourself, mix it up, do different stuff, keep it fresh, but do something. It's very, very important to, to stay active in this time. Find a way to make it fun for yourself because at yeah. the end of the day, sports are supposed to be about enjoying yourself. I've been listening to an audio book uh, of James Clear, who wrote a book called Atomic Habits who was talking about setting habits. And actually, it's not the amount of time you spend forming a new habit that counts. It's actually the number of times that you do it. And therefore, yeah. it's more important to do a habit more often 
um, yeah, length that's... of time, but also to be disappointed at not having done enough rather than disappointed at having done none of it. Yeah, exactly. Like we'll tell people when they sign up for lessons and stuff, private lessons, 20 minutes. They're like, oh, can we do a double? My kid could, can definitely concentrate for 40 minutes. I was like, well, maybe, but this is what we do. And if you're willing to do a double lesson, can you come twice a week? Because yeah. two, two times 20 minutes is more effective than one time 40 minutes. Yeah, that's very true. Because it's just, fencing is about the repetitions and it's about spreading out the repetitions and getting all your reps in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, no matter how good your kind of concentration are, it's, it's, the, it's the, 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 as you said earlier on, it's so important about the recovery aspect of fencing and letting the brain go away and kind of do those, those, those neurological kind of repairs and, and, and stimulation and then be able to kind of go back and practice the action for a second time. That recovery is, is hugely important to the kind of the adaptations. But Dan, just on a kind of like final thing, obviously mm -hmm. we've had the Olympic Games being moved by nearly a year now. You know, no one wants to to tempt fate, but obviously Marcus is having a particularly great season and, and, and has got a great trajectory. Kind of how are you kind of coping as a coach with a, a, a kind of the, your goal being moved by, by almost a year? How does that feel as a coach? And, and how is kind of that for Marcus as well? It is what it is. And the reason I can say that is we are fencers. And we are trained to deal with change and adapt at a moment's notice. And this is no different. And that doesn't mean it isn't hard. It doesn't mean it isn't frustrating. It doesn't mean it isn't painful. All it means is you just, we just got to get back to work. And the way we're looking at it is great. We have another year to get better. Marcus and I have only been working together for two and a half years. And all yeah. of a sudden we get another year to do something great sucks i wish i was going to tokyo and like the plans that i had are scrapped my business right now we'll make it through i'm a little worried but we'll make it through but i get another year to train my athlete like we're gonna have all these other tournaments there's just one more tournament to qualify knock on wood we'll yeah. qualify and everything else is just practice it's really interesting you say that because actually, I was, uh, like Chris earlier on, I was listening to another podcast about resilience and what, what it, it, it seems like is that actually kind of the way you as a team, both you and Marcus together, have kind of looked at this as a, as a real positive. It's kind of embracing change. It's the idea that actually it, it might be kind of an obstacle, but the idea of like some athletes may see this as additional pressure is looking at that as a way to grow more, to get better, to keep developing. And, and I think that is a really strong mindset. And kind of what we're, we're trying to get out of this podcast for anybody listening really is that it's tough, but it's here to stay. And it's a bit like the Olympic Games being moved for, for the top athletes. If you embrace it, if you see it as a reason to, to challenge yourself, to, to, to grow, to develop, then actually you start to embrace the pressure, in, embrace the kind of what feels originally like a, a negativity into what is a, is a positivity. And, and clearly the two of you are being exceptionally positive about it, which is just great to hear. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Like I said, it hasn't been easy, but we're, we are just excited. I mean, I think athletes in general should be excited because under the best possible circumstances, nobody's going to go into the Olympics with that many injuries. I mean, Nicole Ross was able to have her ACL repaired. I haven't talked to her in a little bit, but I know she had her ACL repaired and she's doing physical therapy. So she had to reinvent her fencing because of an injury. And now she gets to heal because of that injury and maybe be better and her legs stronger. Her legs will definitely be stronger than when she comes back. Now yeah. it only takes about eight months to eight months or so to recover from an ACL, and she's got a year. That you know, it's working beautifully for some people. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. If we again, if we don't all come back more injury-free than we've ever been in our lives, then again, we've done something wrong. Yeah. So you mentioned early on that you listen to a bunch of podcasts. 
Can you give me a few of the ones that you listen to? Most of my podcasts have been fairly political lately, but also historical. I listen to Pod Save America, which is run by a, a bunch of Obama, former Obama staffers. I listen to uh, Reply All, which is like a technology and pop culture kind of weirdness podcast. I listen to something called What a Day, which is like a daily like wrap up, pod, like 15 minutes at the beginning of the day, like the top news stories, headlines. I listen to WTF with Mark Marin. Uh, I think he's a great interviewer. Uh, and I kind of just love how he, he uses, uh, he uses a podcast for his own therapy. What else? There's been, what are the other ones? Oh, I listened to one about Tiger King. I listened to one about <laughs> how, oh, this is an interesting one. Cause I was an American history major. There's a podcast out there. I haven't finished it cause it's not done yet, but basically that says that the CIA was responsible for, uh, writing the Scorpions wind of change song to help bring down the Soviet union. Huh. That the CIA oh, wow. actually that wrote that song, so uh, I listened to stuff about like the history of New York City, the history of U.S. politics, sports. It, it runs the gamut. Comedy. Great, great playlist. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And do you, do you still work in graphics and the internet? And no, not really. Uh, I do stuff for my own club, but okay. uh, I really hence the uh, great t-shirts. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. And the hat? Very... Is the hat you? No, no. Marcus actually got me this hat in Brooklyn. It was a, uh, it was from a store that was in the same building as the fencing club. Nice. But, but yeah, I don't do that anymore. I'll, I'll, cons I'll, I'll, people ask me my opinion and I'll do stuff for the club, but I'm a fencing coach now. I love okay. that. Thank you guys so much. This was tons of fun. And, uh, hopefully Chris, I'll get to meet you in person and hopefully Ben will be back at it sometime soon. If it gets any worse here, uh, I'm going to definitely look into moving to the UK, Ben. I'm going to come live at your house. Do it, do it. You can, you can share a bed with me at my parents' house. You'll love oh, it. Where's sweet. <laughs> my, awesome. my, my family cooks great food, so you're, you're more than welcome anytime. But yeah, you know, Dan, thank you so much for, for, for all of this today. It's been brilliant. No problem. What were you going to say, Chris? I know. Say, you know, the situation over here isn't very clear. We did like Boris has kind of said, go do stuff, don't do anything. So yeah, well, <laughs> we don't know what But at is. least your civil liberties aren't being trampled. Yes, and, this is true. And you, and you recognize the country you live in. Yeah, no, very, very true. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Dan, I know you've got to run because you're about to go and uh, beat some poor little uh, soul up as well and train. Yeah, I got to get... Once again, thank you so much for coming on and we'll, we'll look to see you very soon, I'm sure. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. I'll talk to you soon. That was Dan Kellner, which is great. We were really excited to have him on and what stories and what insights we got. I don't think I've ever heard any of those comments before. I don't know if you have, Ben. No, they, they, they were brilliant. I mean, I, I, as I said earlier on, I spent a lot of time with Dan on the circuit. And, and you know, I, I, I love watching him give lessons to Marcus and some of the insights he has. And, um, you know, a lot of the team dinners we have, there's, there's a lot of insightful stuff going around. So it was a real pleasure to, to, to have him on. Yeah, definitely. And next week, we've got another interview with another mystery guest. So make sure to subscribe, review and get in touch if you've got any questions for us. But otherwise, wait and see who that's going to be. We're very excited uh, to bring you another voice from the fencing world. Absolutely. And if anybody's got any questions they want to send in, I know we're making it tricky for you by keeping our guests uh, uh, secret. Um, but still, if there's any dying questions you have about what, what we can do within lockdown, please send them over. Uh, most of the people we are interviewing are, are multifaceted. Uh, some are protect practitioners, some are going to be fencing coaches, uh, and some are, are former fencers themselves. So please send in all any of your questions to the Twitter um, account, which is at 
fenced in podcast and we'd love to hear from you guys or even just let us know what you thought of our episodes um and as chris said uh review subscribe and, and get in contact and we're on, we're on lots of different platforms see you later guys bye bye the fenced in podcast has been created in association with j4g design your one-stop user experience agency for all things digital websites graphic design and technical support